everybody. You're listening to the Manitobaville podcast. This is Mahangel. So it's an audio featured program. Quit staring at your phone. Go do something. Put me in your ear. <laughs> Put me in your ear. Go and do something. Go for a walk. Go uh, clean the house. Make dinner. Or drive to or from work. To or fro. Fro. Drive, fro, work. Okay, listen to this. This is it. Um, don't abandon us. We'll never abandon the Manitobaville podcast. We're not going to leave it as an empty shell, a hulk, a hull, an empty vessel. Is that a, a, a symbol of times past? Because that's sad. It's so sad when you see uh, big buildings that are abandoned. And you think, man, who messed that up? What family couldn't keep that building going? You know, you see a lot, and they're just rotted, and it's rotted, and it's... Uh, it's just uh, kind of poetic sitting there in the overgrown brush. And somebody takes a black and white photo of it and says, wow, look at that. Isn't that great? And um, what I tend to think is, who let it get that way? Because there's lots of other buildings that age that look good, you know. So did somebody, were they forced out of their home uh, economically? Were they, uh, did they just run out of kids? No kids wanted to stick around, so they just decided... Well, we'll leave it and see if somebody wants to buy it or rent it, and then nobody does. Or, um, you know, in the case of, 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 of cities or towns where they have former industrial buildings, and it's kind of sad because things go into, into disrepair so badly that you can't bring it back. Um, and then, you know, people see it and they wonder, what is that? What was that? What, what did that used to be? And uh, that's the subject of the, today's podcast because we're talking to Dr. Gordon Goldsboro. And Dr. Goldsboro makes a pastime and I guess part of his living off of figuring out w what these buildings were, taking photos of them, understanding the, the background, talking to neighbors, talking to historians, trying to figure out what's, uh, what's up with that. What did that used to be? Who used to live there? and all that good stuff. So he's written two books called Abandoned Manitoba. The first one is Abandoned Manitoba. The second one is More Abandoned Manitoba. And I suspect there's so much abandoned out there, there's probably a third book in it. So you never know. Anyway, uh, we talked to Dr. Goldsboro here for a while, and we see what he's all about in the, uh, you know, as far as old buildings and abandoned Manitoba books and whatnot, and his outlook on that aspect of Manitoba. So, without further ado, uh, we just have uh, this quick little break, and we will jump right into that interview. But first, I will tell you to search Manitobaville. That's, uh, you know, become part of our community. We're trying to make a community of a sustainable community. And we're going to talk a little bit in some future podcasts about sustainability, farming, um, you know, basically middle-aged stuff because we're sort of heading <laughs> back there the way governments and financial institutions are are, are working out. And uh, yeah, it's sort of that kind of idea where we may be abandoned at some point, so we should uh, learn all about it or something. Anyway, if you're on uh, social media, look up Manitobaville. And if you're on a podcatcher and somebody has has told you about Manitobaville, or you're telling somebody else, just tell them go to that podcatcher and search Manitobaville. They'll find us. You'll oh, I'm still in the tagline. You'll find us. 
<laughs> Too bad. Taglines, commercials. Here we go. See you on the other side. Well, and, and it, they're, say they're, most of these buildings have a really interesting story to tell mm-hmm. if you just were receptive to it. And, and that's, so that's why I'm always looking for places that have an interesting story. Yeah. Uh, and, and there's, I mean, I, I, every so often I come across and think, oh, you know, I've found all the good ones stories now and there's probably nothing left. And, mm-hmm. and then a real pot boiler comes out and I go, man, that is such a good story. How, why didn't I not know about that? You know, and, you know, so it, what it tells me is that, you know, for, despite all the good stories that I found, I'm sure there's even better ones that are still out there waiting, yeah. waiting. How do you find out about them? Uh, oh well, that's one way. Absolutely. Um, yeah. Like 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 I you know I find out about really cool places because somebody I run into says, "Oh, have you heard of?" And then they tell me this, and I go, "No, tell me more." And sometimes they're even very sort of almost apologetic, saying, "Oh, you won't be interested in this, and I really don't want to bother you or waste your time." But you know, and I'll go, "No, no, no, yeah. no. Tell me, tell me, please." Is it because they're maybe curious and they want to see if you know something about it? And, well, or, or and then it just captures your attention. It's something that they're interested in, and they're just. F- fearful i guess that somebody else might not find it interesting oh, okay. and i'll go man that's that's boring like, yeah. Yeah. like no 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 and please tell me and it's oftentimes you know they'll tell me and then i'll go that that's a great story like i want to know more tell me more and sometimes they'll say well i i know a little more and they'll tell me more but a lot of times they'll say well i've told you as much as i know mm-hmm. and then it'll be oh god i gotta go dig then i gotta find more and a lot of times you can find this stuff if you yeah. persevere. Um, you know, there's great resources like at the Provincial Legislative Library, the Provincial Archives. You know, you can find stuff if you if you know, if you have an idea of what you're looking for. But you can't go in there and just say, hey, tell me some good stories. Because obviously, the, you know, they, they don't know yeah. what to tell you. Or it's too many. <laughs> well, there's too many. Yeah. Or you know, But I think, frankly, they just... Don't know. They, I mean, they right. just don't know what you would want to know. Right. So, uh, no, so people telling me is often a good source. Um, research, you know, if I'm out doing some particular kind of research and then I just uh, find something else that's related and go, oh, that's a good idea. I'll put it in my little log. I've got a, I've got a to-do list that is you know, <laughs> pages long. I can imagine. And then sometimes it's this complete serendipity. You know, I'm, I'm out traveling somewhere and... I go, what's that? Hmm, let me. So I'll, I'll sometimes turn around, go back, and look. Oh, kind of that's kind of interesting. And and they'll you know make initial notes about it, and then I'll say, well, I'll look into that later. And you know who right. knows what that is. So for example, um, I was out I mean, a few years ago. I was in the Verdon area, and uh, you know there's a lot of old buildings in the Verdon area, mm-hmm. farms, farmhouses that were abandoned. Yep. And it's, but you know, so to my and large, I kind of almost ignore them now because there's just so many of them, and you know every single one of them. I mean. How much can you really learn about every single one? Yeah. So I figured, well, they're all, you know, there's a sad story, a farm, a farm family that hoped and dreamed about some, you know, finding success, and they didn't, and therefore the farm is abandoned. But um, occasionally you come across just a really good one. So uh, this particular case, there was this stone building, and I'm always interested in stone buildings because they're obviously, you put an investment in them yeah. to make them out of stone. You know, it obviously means the person was probably a little well off, but also that they intended to be there for the long term. You know, they built something that's durable. Right. So uh, this particular building, I thought, well, I've seen it a couple of times from afar. I'll go and look at it a little closer. So I did, and I looked at it, and it was an impressive building. 
Uh, actually, it was the house, but it was also a granary. There were two buildings there. Okay. Um, the granary was in pretty good shape. In fact, it is remarkably in good shape considering its age. The house, well, not so much. It looks almost what I call a dollhouse. You know, where you have these dollhouses where one wall of the house falls down yeah. and you can actually reach into the house and move <laughs> the doll around? Yeah. Well, that's basically what happened to this house. Oh. One wall had fallen away, okay. and you could look inside and see all the rooms, and I'm like, ooh, I'm not going, I'm not going inside that one. You know, sometimes I do. I mean, I'll wander inside just to see what you know, yeah. the building looks like. But that one, I'm not going in there. Mm -hmm. But I thought, okay, it's an interesting building, but mm, don't know too much more about it. So I kind of put it aside and didn't think much more about it. And then I guess a few months later, I thought, well, I should find out a little more about that building. It turns out there's a guy named James Scallion built it. And today, if you mention that name, most people will go, no idea. I mean, that doesn't ring a bell for me, not at all. Yeah. Um, unless you happen to be from the Verdon area. So actually, I just recently I got was contacted by a reporter uh, in Verdon, and she said, oh, I live beside Scallion Creek. And, and I was really interested to find out why it's mm -hmm. called that. Like, I didn't know anything about this Scallion guy. And I said, well, you know, that's not surprising. The guy died back in the 1920s. So, you know, <laughs> how, how likely it is that you would have yeah. ever heard of him. Yeah. But you should, I mean, you should know about him because it turns out he's quite a significant guy. He was involved... Well, in a lot of things, but it was primarily in political activism. You know, he believed, for example, that farmers should get paid a decent wage for the for the mm -hmm. services they provide, that they should they right. be able to sell their products at a reasonable price. You know, and of course, mm -hmm. at that time especially, a lot of these companies were trying to, you know, cheat the farmers as best they could. You know, whatever money the farmer didn't get, the grain company would get or the, you know, the cattle company would no, get. No, that's just a good capitalist system of work. What are you well, talking about? <laughs> okay. <laughs> and the farmers wouldn't withhold their uh, well, products. So, and, and of course, you farmers... Couldn't, you couldn't and, withhold it. You and had to and if you're it. just one farmer, of course, yeah. you don't have the means. You yeah, know, yeah, if you yeah. at least got together as a group, you have yeah. some power, right? Yeah. Well, is what he thought is that farmers and they grouped together yeah. they then had an influence so uh, there was a gr organization called the manitoba grain growers association right. and he was one of its founders okay in fact, he was the president in the early, early oh, days cool. and the, gr the manitoba grain growers association eventually became a company called united grain growers mm -hmm. which became one of the bigger companies in western canada in the 20th century you know, UGG was, well, and up until it yeah. disappeared in a corporate merger in the early 21st century. Yeah. Um, but after dealing with the government for a number of years, it just became known as UG. <laughs> <laughs> yes. I thought it was very aptly named. I'd see it all the time growing <laughs> up. True. I was like, oh, yeah, UG. UG. <laughs> so he was one of its founders. Uh, I mean, so he was also, but he was also involved in a political party, the United Farmers of Manitoba. Mm -hmm. And uh, they actually elected enough uh, MLAs to the provincial legislature that they actually formed a government. In fact, the, the strange thing was, this was at a time when the parties didn't have a leader the way they do today. Okay. So they, they elected enough representatives that they then could govern. So they said, oh, now we've got to find somebody to be the premier. Uh, we don't have a leader that could become premier. So they started uh, interviewing people to become the leader and they asked this guy named John Bracken. And he was the principal of the agricultural college here in Manitoba. They thought, well, this is a guy. He's smart. He, he knows agriculture. Uh, because it was the party was called the United Farmers of Manitoba, the premise mm -hmm. of it was that farmers were, you know, they were practical. They, you know, they were grounded in the land and, you know, that they would be good to govern you know, along the same principles. Uh, and so they thought, well, this guy, he's the principal of the school. Let's get him as our leader. So they... They didn't. They had to convince him. He was not easily convinced, mm -hmm. uh, but eventually they got him, and he's now uh, our longest-serving premier of Manitoba. 
uh, John Bracken became the Premier of Manitoba, and it's, yeah. I forget the number of years that he served, but it's a long, long period, right. and became a major political feature of, of the 20th century. So John, uh, James Scallion, therefore, you know, had his hands in a lot of very influential things, and yeah. here is his house basically tumbling down, and nobody really knows about that story. So I thought, well, mm -hmm. that's a good story. That Not just the story of that house, but the story of the guy. Yeah who yeah. lived in that house. And why he had such a great, great grain building. Yeah, for sure. You know, he, well, probably, he was probably up to date on how to store grain, how to, because you'd have to, precisely. It's, like, it's like farmers now can sit on their grain yeah. and watch the market. Mm -hmm. In those days, of course, it was wooden granaries, if that, and, and you'd have to. And they were small. And, and so you, you had to get rid of it, you, you had, had to move it. You had to move it quickly, yeah. and you had to send, take it to the elevator, and yeah. the elevator would give you whatever yeah. price they thought was reasonable for yeah. them. And if you didn't like it, well, yeah. you can go to the next town if you want to go to a different so elevator. So here's a guy probably coming from England mm -hmm. or somewhere where yeah. they have a long history of storing their grain mm -hmm. locally mm -hmm. for well, a long period of time because they had to eat it locally yeah, for, until the next harvest came in. That's right. Well, and, and Scallion, in fact, was kind of interesting too because his farm had actually had a railway going right through it. And so he had a little siding on his property. Yeah. And so he could determine when he wanted to ship grain. So if he wanted mm -hmm. to send grain to market, he didn't have to go into the elevator and beg the agent to take his grain. Yeah. He could just say, I want a boxcar dropped off on my siding. I will load that boxcar you know, as I yeah. see fit and send it to market. So you know, he basically he controlled the whole process. So yeah. say an influential guy, but, but the, whole, the whole story of that, it was only because I just finally decided to myself, got to check out that house. You know, yeah. finally, after I've seen it so many times, I got to go check it out. You know, and That's, that has happened so many, so many times. You know, it's, it's sort of like being a history detective where things just sort of fall into place and something you already know yeah. that doesn't make sense at the time or it's just stored in a notebook or in, your, in the corner of your mind. That's right. And I mean, then somebody it, triggers it with another piece of information. And That's right. And, and then sometimes it's a matter of making contacts. So yeah. one time, another time I, I found a little building that had this big gaping hole in the side of it. I mean, almost like a giant had punched it, yeah, yeah. you know, this big hole. And, and it wasn't like it was a, a flimsy building. It was made out of concrete blocks. Okay. You know, sort of plow a big hole in the middle of it. Was it perfectly like round hole? Pretty, or was pretty it round. It wasn't so quite perfectly circular, but it yeah. was reasonably round. And you thought, what could have done that? And, and I didn't know. I mean, I, I guess I could have canvassed all the local farms and would have found out the story, but I never, but I was fascinated what it was. And then just out of the blue, I was at another, I was at a conference and I was talking about something entirely differently. Uh, I was doing talking about science, and mm -hmm. uh, the guy I was talking to said, "Oh, I'm from the Treehern area." And so, I, you know, Treehern. Do you happen to know anything about that little building north of Treehern that has this big hole in the side of it? And he says, "Well, actually, I live just a few miles away from it." <laughs> I said, "Well, tell me more. What yeah. happened to it?" And he said, "Well, it's. I can't know. I don't know if I want to tell you the whole story. It's pretty sad." And I go, "Well, come on." And he said, "Well, somebody got liquored up and drove their combine into it." <laughs> and and of course because it involved liquor, uh, yeah. that of course then if you try to get insurance yeah. on your, it, it would wreck the combine. I mean it, of course yeah. plowing into a concrete building, it's bound to. Yeah, yeah. And, you know and of course <laughs> if you try to get insurance on that, they're going to say, well how is it you managed to drive into a concrete building? Oh mm. liquor involved, right? Okay, yeah. no insurance. So um, they didn't involve the insurance agent. They just mm -hmm. did it quietly behind the scenes. They paid a you know money was exchanged. Yeah. Everyone was happy, and then the building just sits there and. You know, and unfortunately, of course, my concern is now with this big gaping hole in the side, you know, the weather can get in. 
Uh, the animals can get in, the, yeah. the vandals can get in, and you know a building that had stood solid for for decades, yeah. you know it's now in, in, in threat because of this unfortunate accident. And it was abandoned at the time. Yeah, yeah. well, it had been used. See, what it turned out, the building was it was a schoolhouse. Okay. It was a one-room schoolhouse. Okay. And it was built in a very uh, narrow interval of time because concrete blocks. Mm -hmm. I'm fascinated by the technology, yeah. Yeah. mainly because it was a homegrown technology. You could build them basically on your farm. Yeah. You know, you could make your concrete, you could pour it into a form, let it set, take about, take the form, they block out, make another one, and just keep making them until you had enough to make, make your house, your granary, your barn, whatever you mm -hmm. needed. And it was only for about 10 years that they okay. made these concrete blocks. Years, so, is that around 1920-ish? No, uh, earlier. It was before the First World War. Okay. So it was from about 1905, roughly, uh, to about 1914. Okay. Uh, so roughly about a 10-year period. And so if you find one of these buildings made out of concrete blocks, you can pretty narrowly define when it was built. Right. So I knew that the schoolhouse was from that time period because it was made of these concrete blocks. Um, but I just didn't know why it, why it had been damaged. Well, it, the reason, it was no longer a school because in the 1960s, school consolidation was happening. And yeah. most of these little one-room schoolhouses were closed because it was just more efficient to bus the kids into a nearby town, yeah. build a big school there, and then, of course, they would all benefit from having not just other people to interact with, but mm -hmm. a bigger school then could have better facilities. It could have a gymnasium, for example. Yeah. It could have a well, a better library. Most of these little one-room schoolhouses had a small rudimentary library. A bigger mm -hmm. school, bigger library, you know, yeah. more opportunities for advancement. More subjects could be taught. More resources for the teachers. Precisely. Of, well, know, teachers... Just around colleagues. Yeah. In, instead of, yeah, instead yeah. of having to have like five or ten grades in one classroom, yeah. you had one grade and they all the kids were one, you know, so it yeah. was an easier job for the teacher as well. Yeah. Actually, well, actually, I learned something about that too, where grades one through six or kindergarten through six, mm. it's actually a better learning environment because the older kids will help the younger kids and Precisely. They, they interact much, they're much tighter knit. And, and, and in fact, I've heard that so many times from people who did go to one-room schoolhouses. Yeah. They said that they learned from the act of teaching, yeah. you know, because they became sort of teacher's assistant. Yeah. You know, yeah. they'd say, okay, you help the little kids with their reading assignment and you help those kids with their math assignment. Yeah. You learn, I mean, yep. I've learned so much from teaching that I, you know, I, I acknowledge how important it is yep. as yep. a learning tool itself. Well, anyway, so the, this particular school that is damaged, it had been turned into a granary after it had been stopped using as, as a school. So the farmer mm -hmm. uh, probably was upset that his granary was damaged, but then they gave him a few bucks. He was able to buy himself a nice new steel granary. Yep. So he didn't care. I mean, he was happy. Um, so the net result was this little schoolhouse that had this interesting story to it. Um, just now yeah. deteriorating. Yeah. So, so that was, again, a complete accident. I, I had found that building not because I was out searching for it, because I was actually out searching for a monument for a school for a church. Okay. And it turned out it was kitty corner from the school. They had the church on one corner and the school on another corner. And I, I found the monument for, this, for the church, but I first when I was driving up, of course, because the building is bigger, it's more conspicuous, and I saw this building and I thought, oh, that kind of looks like a school. Then I came a little closer and was like, Oh my God! What happened to it? Like it's got this big hole, yeah. and then I, then after I sort of looked at the school, and I was like, Oh right, I was here to look for that that monument for the church. Oh, there it is <laughs> over there. Okay, yeah. that was almost like sort of a you know a letdown at that point. It's like, wow, I just had this great experience in this little schoolhouse. That was kind of like not mm -hmm. as not as exciting. So yeah, monuments for buildings not there anymore. That's <laughs> yes, right. Yeah, 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 for sure. Yeah. That's crazy. Yeah. What's what's the oldest uh, archaeological 
thing they found in Manitoba. Oh my, I don't even know. I mean, a lot of the stuff that I've been finding is dates to the 20th century. I mean, yeah. it's, it's buildings, you know, things like that. Yeah. So uh, that means they're not more than a hey, 100 years or so. I think probably the oldest thing that I've been to, a building anyway, would be the would be York Factory. Okay. Um, I had an opportunity, not this past summer, but the summer before, 2017, to visit York Factory. And the building there was built starting in 1831. So that means that it's a very mm -hmm. old building. In fact, I, I've said this a few times to historians, and nobody yet has contradicted me, so I might be right. I, I said that I think it's the oldest wooden building surviving in Manitoba. Yeah. Um, the only one that's close would be the uh, Grey Nuns Convent here in Winnipeg, okay. and it was dates to the 1850s, so it's a good 20 years older than the Grey Nuns Convent. Yeah. Uh, remarkable building, absolutely remarkable, and that was worth it. And the expense and the yeah. time that it took to get there, just just for that alone. And it would have been built like an industrial building of the day, probably oh, yeah. meant to, to hold up, well, as it, opposed to dwellings people lived in or or rent, sold groceries out of or things like that. It was meant to be durable because, yeah. of course, that was the basis of the industry. It was a fur trading building. They mm -hmm. would have stored the trade goods in there. They would have stored the furs in there. And they had to make it in such a way that it could withstand the environment, too. Because if you think about York Factory and where it is, it's right on Hudson Bay. It's pretty inhospitable for a large, large part of the year. It's cold yeah. as heck in the winter. You know, and so, of course, that causes freezing and thawing, which is hard on a, a structure of any kind. Mm -hmm. But on top of that, the entire terrain there is covered in peat. You know, and so you walk around, and in fact, you almost feel like you're on a big trampoline. Because yeah. there's a good two or three feet of this spongy peat everywhere, yeah. uh, and it's very wet. You know, in fact, if you, you almost want to wear rubber boots when you're walking around there, because the water mm -hmm. they, is just there. It's like walking on a big wet sponge. Yeah. Um, and this building is sitting on that, and you think, how in the heck has a building stood up that many years on a foundation so crummy as that? And and what it is a testament to is that the the skill of the of the people who built it, you know, because they have drains. Well, for instance. Um, Parks Canada was doing some restoration work on it a few years ago, and uh, there's an inner courtyard of the building that um, was where they had this drain, and apparently they, it was starting to collapse. It was made out of wood, so inevitably it starts to decompose. It's in the ground, it's wet. Yeah. And initially they saw this sort of uh, subsidence happening, and they thought it was maybe uh, attributable to just you know climate change. It was maybe the permafrost was melting, and they were worried because if the permafrost underneath the building starts to melt, the whole building goes. But it turned out, no, it's just this drain that was starting to rot. Okay. And, and it, so they got down in there and they started doing an archaeological excavation and they found, you know, the carpenters who built it, you know, how many decades ago, probably even over a century ago, really knew what they were doing. Yeah. You know, and they had built this remarkably effective drain that had drained away a lot of the subsoil to, to solidify the ground underneath this building. And, and it therefore made it a much more solid building than it would otherwise be. So one of the guys that I was traveling there with said he walked around in this building and this building was less squeaky than his own building at home. So yeah. it was much newer. Yeah. You know, I think, well, this goes to show you build a building solid and you do it right, you know, they last, they stand up. So it would freeze up there, the uh, the, the peat bog would freeze. Mm -hmm. Well, But what's it, is it on like solid 
stone? No, like, it, uh, the the building is is simply on the ground there, yeah. and it, and they, there is permafrost there, so it's permanently yeah. frozen. So year it's not round. heaving, yeah. Which is uh, a but yeah, it doesn't heave. Uh, but the concern is that, uh, well, there especially, the concern is that the bank of the river that is nearby is carving, you know, backwards we'll every year by closer. year. Yeah. Well, they say they, they lose sometimes up to three feet a year. Oh, wow. Uh, and so Parks Canada has estimated that within a century, that building will just cart over into the Hayes River. Can they reverse that river too? Or <laughs> get rid of it? Put in another river like well, they did with the Nelson? <laughs> they, they would have to do something. Well, in fact, they, they, they have looked into the means by which they could stabilize it. Yeah. And it's going to cost millions. I yeah. mean, not surprisingly, to do that kind of major works. And it's, of course, difficult because of where it is. It's not just because of the amount of work that it is, but it's also having to move everything there. They estimated it could be like six or seven million dollars. You know, which is not an inconsiderable sum, and especially when Parks Canada has other buildings around Canada that they have to maintain. Yeah. You know, they have to weigh against all of their other priorities. Is it worth spending that many millions on a building that a handful of people will visit a year, as opposed to a building in Banff, let's say, yeah. that you know thousands of people are going to see? So, you know, when you trade it off like that, you know, it's unlikely that it's going to get the kind of money that it's going to take to to do a, a repair job. So, that's too bad. I'm pretty sure that building is doomed. But you know, it won't be in my lifetime, probably. Um, yeah. But a building that has stood for you know almost two centuries mm -hmm. um, might be gone within the next century. And and climate change, of course, is a big question mark too, because that'll serve to cause the permafrost to melt. And when that happens, and the building starts to be unstable, and then it could collapse. You yeah. Know, even yeah. if it doesn't get undercut by uh, by erosion. Wow. So yeah, lots of, but you know, that's the thing. There are so many interesting stories. I don't look at this in any way as, as a moneymaker. I mean, if I make some money on it, that's nice. That's sort of icing on the cake, mm -hmm. but it's more just an opportunity to tell the stories yeah. because I just enjoy it so much that I thought, hey, wouldn't anybody else enjoy it too? Uh, and, and so that's why, you know, when I, when I have the luxury, especially in a book to go on at length, because say with the interviews on radio, uh -huh. we are limited to, you know, 10 minutes and that's it. Whereas here, I mean, within reason, I can tell the story right from beginning to end, and that's the that's the really enriching part for me because I can then learn more with pictures. With pictures, oh yeah. yeah. Well, of course, the other thing on radio is you you have to try to create a sort of a verbal picture, yeah. which is okay sometimes. I'm not a very good at pr person at doing that, but mm -hmm. um, but you can kind of convey it. I sometimes will refer people saying, if you want to see what that looks like, go to our website, and we've got pictures of it there. But yeah. of course, with a, with a book, you have the luxury of saying, you know, here and see this. Okay, notice that little thing there. Well, that the story of that is, and then you go on and tell them about it. And it's uh, nice too because on websites like the MHS website, you have finite information. It's usually pretty didactic as to what it is, where it is, yeah, the, the, but, some but, of the stories. But it is, a lot it. of it's hyperlinked as well. Yeah. In fact, yeah. there's the power, yeah. it seems to me, because you can then tell a story that links to another story. Yeah, yeah. You know, and if a person just wants to get the basic story, just read that and then you're done. Yeah. But if you are if you want to dig more deeply, you yeah. follow the links and boy, you can really immerse yourself and you can lose yourself for hours. I, I mean, I, I say that because I've <laughs> done exactly yeah. that. I fell down the barn rabbit hole. I, you know, I'm continually amazed at what's there, even though I ended up putting a lot of it there. Yeah. Just because I didn't make the connections that you make when you follow these links. Right. Did you find Stephen uh, Leacock's uncle's house in Myrtle? Oh, yeah. It's wow. in my first book, actually. It's in the first Leacock house. Yeah. yeah. Because uh, <laughs> I actually was in Myrtle, mm -hmm. and uh, they had told me about this, this house on the hill called the castle. Yeah. And uh, that it, that was supposedly built by this guy named Leacock. And I go, Leacock? Yeah. And I found out, of course, that he's related to Stephen Leacock. And yeah. it's like, oh, really? And it, well, and then it turns out um, Stephen Leacock wrote an essay one time called, 
something my something uncle I forget the title of it mm. but it was based on his uncle his real life uncle yeah. who was a real character I mean he was really a character and you read that essay and you think oh maybe it wasn't as fictional as we thought yeah. it was yeah, yeah. And, and then you read that story and then you go and look at the house and you think yeah like this guy was a real character people often mm. say I think that when that Manitoba's history well Canadian history generally just doesn't have the kind of really colorful characters that you hear about in American history yeah I don't think that's true at all. I, no. I absolutely don't. I just think that we as Canadians don't tell the stories as well. We're just more embarrassed by them than they are down there. I suppose maybe <laughs> down so. Down there it's a good story, good yarn. And, the, and you tell up them here we're like, oh, works that, all, we don't want to talk about that guy. <laughs> but, but I think I, that's why yeah. maybe, maybe someday a book that I would tell would be sort of the scoundrels of Manitoba history. Because there's piles mm -hmm. of them. There's all kinds of really interesting characters yeah. that you could tell stories about. Did you see the, the did you see the picture of the actual what it looked like originally? Oh yeah, house? yeah. The picture is yeah. in my book. Yeah. Uh, and then I got a tour yeah. inside it. Um, yeah. I don't know what its what its state is now because I actually know the guy who owns it. Bells, I, I didn't think bells, at the time yeah. that I did, but I know him. Yeah. And I got a tour inside it, and uh, he was like, "Oh, you know, we're gonna have to tear this down pretty soon because mm -hmm. uh, it's structurally pretty compromised." And I looked at it I'm like, "Oh yeah, I think there's a big gaping yeah. crack down one wall." Yeah. Um, you know, it's surprising that it stood as long as it has, but mm -hmm. it's not long for this world. Yeah. And uh, yeah, well, you, in fact, you wouldn't be you would be hard pressed to even though it's the same building, yeah. because there was sort of a turret on one side. Yeah, and on the, the turret north north side. That's yeah. right. Yeah. yeah, and and it's not dramatic anymore, so yeah. you wouldn't see it. You would, well, in fact, when I first saw the picture of it, I thought, is that the same building? Yeah. I'm not sure. Yeah, you have to get your mind around it, which which yeah. way you're looking at it when yeah. you see that picture. Yeah, 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 yeah. And then you go, oh, that's why the back wall goes up and then ends. That's right. And it looks so odd. That's right, yeah, because yeah. if you see the old picture, you go, oh, okay, I see it used yeah. to be there. Yeah. yeah. I think yeah. if anybody can make it into something, it'll be wrong. Yeah. He's a smart guy. Yeah. Um, it just won't be a, a living space. That's right. Yeah, yeah. It, maybe make it an accent wall or something for a garden. Put some yeah. trellises on it with some vines or something that maybe can make it interesting. Yeah. Um, yeah. Well, Ron actually, um, to his credit, he also said to me, "Well, are you familiar with that house out in the in the country south of Bertle?" I go, "No, not sure. I know what you mean." So he said, oh, let's get in the truck and we'll take you out there. So okay. we did. And we drove out into the middle of a field, like way out into the middle of the field. And I thought at the time, why would anybody <laughs> build a house way out here? Yeah. Well, it turned out it was built a long, long time ago. Yeah. Um, when I guess before a lot of the road allowances were built with roads and this guy mm -hmm. thought it would be a good spot to have his house here. It was a commanding view of the, of the surrounding landscape. Beautiful looking spot. Uh, a nice stone house. Again, you're probably familiar with it, in fact. There's a picture of it in my book. Yeah. Um, a few years ago, it was torched, okay. uh, and so oh. all the wooden parts were burned away. The yeah. roof and the floors of the various you know levels. Yeah. Right um, so all that's left now is the stone outer walls, and then there's a concrete part on one side, but it's way out in the middle of a farmer's field. And uh, so anyway, Ron showed it to me, and I thought it was so exciting. I put a picture of it in my in my first book, mm -hmm. and then um, oh, it was like. I don't know, a month ago, I guess, I got an email from a guy saying, oh, I, I was so excited to see the picture of my house in your in your book. <laughs> and I go, oh, really? I See, I didn't know quite who yeah. owned the property. Ron showed it to me, but yeah. I didn't know if he owned it. Turned out he didn't. Uh, he, had, he had rented it, I think, or maybe he used to own it. I don't remember. Okay. But anyway, he, he showed it to me. And this guy, who now was retired, and I think he's living in Calgary, and his son is now running the farm. 
and so his son basically owns the property. And but he was tickled that actually somebody cared enough about this building yeah. to talk to call attention to it. Because yeah. again, it had an interesting story. The the fellow that had built it was a was a Northwest Mounted Police officer. Had gone west at a time when the west was still largely unsettled. Right. Uh, he had passed through the area, the Bertle area, at a time when the Bertle was really very you know primitive. And he looked around and went, you know, this is a beautiful spot. I think, you know, when my term as a police officer is done, I'm going to come back here and settle. And that's nice. exactly what he did. So nice. years later, he came back and he built this house and was quite prominent in the community. I mean, he's, he's been gone a very long time. I know, mm -hmm. In fact, off the top of my head, I can't even remember his name. Mm -hmm. But um, this house is still standing there. And yeah. again, interesting story that I would have never known about if it wasn't for somebody saying, hey, do you know about the... Well, and then fill in the blank. And those stone houses, if you re-interiorize them, mm -hmm. would they be suitable for living if they were structurally approved? Oh, a lot of them are structurally solid. It's, yeah. it's not so much that. I think it's more just the inefficiency of the, you know, they, they would be cold yeah. because they don't have virtually any insulation. Well, because charm costs money. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Well, unless you're prepared to, you know, do some retrofitting yeah. of, of insulation on them. Yeah. Uh, but of course, in the process, you'd destroy a lot of the charm of them. If you put on the insulation on the outside, yeah. one of these yeah. stone buildings, you'd ruin it. Yeah. Um, like there's a house, now I'm trying to remember where exactly it is. It's north of Hartney. And uh, I'd driven by it a number of times. It's on a little rise of a hill. And uh, I'd driven by it, never really again paying much attention to it. And I thought one time I was coming back from a meeting in Hartney with a friend. And he pointed it out to me, and I went, okay, I'm going to stop. I've been, I've been to this past this place so many times, I'm going to look. So we went and wandered around inside it. And, you know, it's been empty for a number of years, and uh, you know, windows had been broken out probably by local vandals. Mm -hmm. But there was a whole bunch of newspapers that had been, I guess, you know, the person who had been living there you know, stored these newspapers. And um, I thought, oh, these are old newspapers. I love old newspapers because they have all kinds of neat little tidbits of information in them. So I brought them a few of them home. And then I didn't look at them. I actually just put them outside. And then weeks or even months later, I found these newspapers and went, oh, yeah, these are from that house. I looked at the name, and they had a little mailing label on them okay. because they had subscribed yeah. and they got them mailed. And I went, that name, that name, I recognize that name. I, why do I recognize <laughs> that name? So I thought, oh, I did some, and, and it was bugging me because I just couldn't think, where is that name? Where did I remember that name? And then I was like, I remember the librarian at the high school that I went to. That was her name, I think. So I went back and checked. Sure enough, she wow. had been the librarian at the school that I went to as a high school. Yeah. And she, when she retired, she moved back to the family homestead okay. and lived there her, in her retirement. And she's, she's been gone years and years and years. But here it was that, you know, by coincidence, the woman's <laughs> house that I was wandering around in this derelict house was the former librarian from my school <laughs> <laughs> i mean it's that's all these little coincidences you know and yeah all these stories and it's just this is what i find so so fun about this is you know to 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 find out about these places and then make all these connections between people that you that you didn't know you knew or yeah. that or that stories that you heard about um that you didn't know that you knew about or yeah. or or sometimes putting right the stories that you had heard, and it turns out they turned out not right. to be true. Yeah. You know, so, for instance, one of the stories I heard as a kid uh, when we were out with my family was uh, uh, along Sturgeon Road here in Winnipeg, um, on the west side of Sturgeon Road, there was this whole bunch of these concrete, well, it turns out they're piles sticking out of the ground. And uh, I, I would ask my dad, well, what, why do they have all these 
chunks of concrete sticking out of the ground. And he'd say, oh, it's a, it's a testing site where they test the concrete to see if the concrete's <laughs> stable enough to be used. And yeah. I'd go, oh, that's, okay. okay, that sounds yeah. like a good explanation. And, and then I would happen to be going by it, oh, I don't know, a couple of years ago, and I thought, I want to go and look at it more closely. And so I pull in, and they've been, of course, they've been there since I'm a kid, so they've been there for years. This is going back to the 1960s. And I go, well, okay, if it's a testing site, it's not used anymore. And, and they have numbers on the sides of these, of these concrete pillars sticking out of the ground that look like they may have been dates, Mm -hmm. uh, and I couldn't tell that for sure, but they were very clearly in a, in a regular pattern. They were in a grid. Right. And, and the way I could tell that is I, I use a drone a lot when yeah. I'm doing these investigations of these historic sites. Just to get a better look. Oh yeah, yeah, you can see things from the air that you often can't see in the ground. So I sent the drone up and paint, pointed its camera straight down and oh, they're in a perfect circle and, and the circle is made up of a grid, a rect regular grid. Okay. And I thought, okay, this is something. It wasn't just a, a random pattern. And I thought, okay, I'll do some digging. I asked my engineer friends what, uh, what these things would be. And they said, well, they're, they're piles, yes. And the number on the side is, in fact, the date. Uh, it was the date so that you'd know when they were solid enough, that when they were strong enough after they had been poured, because concrete, of right. course, is originally fluid, yeah. uh, when they were hard enough that you could start driving them, because that's what you would do. You'd drive these things into the ground okay. to provide a, a platform in which to build a building. And then you need to know what the age of these things to know, okay, this one's, this one's still green. We can't pound on it or it's going to shatter. Yeah. This one is nice and solid. We'll start pounding on it. And I said, well, why are these things there? And they go, well, they didn't know. Yeah. So I started going through old newspapers, and I found it. It, it, was, <laughs> a, it was going to be a cement manufacturing plant. Okay. Um, in fact, at, at, at the time, this was in the six, 1960s, um, there were two plants that manufactured cement in, in Winnipeg. One was in Fort White, and in fact, it, it was, it's still there to some extent. It's, it was run by a company called Canada Cement. It's actually the oldest one. It goes back to, I think, around 1911. And um, in fact, the lakes at Fort White are actually the quarries where they quarried the clay to make ah. the cement at that plant. Okay. Well, so that was the first one. So th th thanks to them for all the beautiful sunsets they get out there. Now. Well, and, and the wildlife they get the wildlife, because the yeah. birds come there because of the water, you know, that is in these lakes. So this thing that destroys the environment. Well, there you go. There is an upside, <laughs> right? There's your circle, yeah. So, so that was the first one. The second one was inland cement. It's a little up the street, just, just south of Ikea, in fact. Okay. And if you go by there now, yeah. you'll see this big pile of rubble because yep. they've just finished demo demolishing that building. Oh, it, okay. That was the second manufacturing plant. Okay. So apparently there was some local company wanted to create a third one. And everybody told them, you're crazy. There's not enough demand for <laughs> cement to, to justify having a third one. Yeah. Well, it turns out, I think, what was happening is that the company that started that third one didn't intend to build one. They wanted to use it as leverage to get a better price on, because they were a, manu they were a construction company. Right. They bought cement for their needs from these other two manufacturers, and they thought, we'll squeeze them a little bit to mm -hmm. get a better price by, by claiming we're going to build our own plant, right. and then they'll, they'll say, oh, my, no, we, we can't afford that because you know, we'll lose money. Right. So they bought them out. They bought out the, pre the site 
before they could start the actual construction. So they basically yeah. put in these piles as the beginning to, to make it clear they were serious. Right. Like, oh, see, they're actually building something. That's how far they had to go. They had to, to go. To get the, and then I think it was Inland that stepped in, stepped in and bought the plant from them and then gave them a sweetheart deal yeah. on cement. <laughs> Forever. So, so they got their deal. And, of course, they walked away and they left the, mm -hmm. the site as it is today. So, you know, here it is now over 50 years later, yeah. this sort of this game of corporate chicken <laughs> uh, is still revealed by these concrete piles and I say so my dad saying oh it's a testing site <laughs> no it wasn't it's the, know, it's the scars of capitalism that's exactly <laughs> yeah and, and and so I was able to tell the story wow. of, of that site and and so that's another st story that I wanted to tell in in this book yeah yeah uh, do you know that monument they've put up down at the forks there's a little slip of a park straight out the back of the CP rail and it, it leads no. up to the main drag where you go into the forks okay it's just to the uh, south of the museum of the new museum okay so, and there's this the monuments the face of that bank that was on main street oh that's right the alloway and champion bank alloway and champion bank yeah where i grew up on that quarter section yeah. when people were going out there to homestead and other people were buying property yeah those guys were starting to speculate all yeah. over manitoba yeah and i guess in saskatchewan and probably ontario they they purchased that Oh, really? And so I grew up on uh, what was originally their purchase. Those two guys, Alloway and Champion, mm -hmm. <clears throat> both came through on the Wolseley expedition. That's right. And, well, in and fact, now, arguably, they made their money in, in well, Métis Scrip. Yeah, and they were also buying uh, government surplus and selling it yep. off as, as, so they, as good. They were comfortable, those guys. Well, yeah. in fact, he was one of the first million, the 19 millionaires. That's right. Was, and it, well, and Alloway, of course, was the one who endowed yeah. the Winnipeg Foundation. Exactly, yeah. So the fact that we have the Winnipeg, in fact, it's yeah. one of the oldest foundations, community foundations in the world. Yeah. Uh, endowed, of course, with that original Alloway gift. Yeah, and um, then with his estate, as when his wife passed. That's right, yeah, and, 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 and everything. now, of course, with many more donations as well. Mm -hmm. And you know, it's a source of pride. And yeah. you look back and think, well, eh, the original endowment came from this Alloway yeah. champion. Yeah. Well, that's why the Alloway name—you'll see it periodically a lot of places, like at Fort White. Mm -hmm. The main building that you go into is the Alloway Reception yeah. Center, yeah. named for Alloway, who, of course, yeah. was. And because they got money from the Winnipeg Foundation, mm -hmm. they named the Alloway Reception Building after yeah. him. So that's cool. Yeah. Funny thing is, they came through on the Wolseley expedition, and mm -hmm. when I moved to Winnipeg, I moved to Wolseley. Oh, really? <laughs> so, All these little connections. I know, it's eh? just names well, and stuff. There, see, that's the thing that other it interests me, too, you know, names of things and why something has the name that it does. And I think that's something that, unfortunately, is going to mm -hmm. be lost because people don't often pay attention when things mm -hmm. get names. And occasionally, I'll get an email saying, well, I live on such and such street, and yeah. I'm curious, why is it named that? Like, yeah. what, where did the name come from? Yeah. And... Sometimes I can find out. Sometimes, you know, there it's a fairly easy thing to yeah. find out. And then sometimes it's just one bear. So, for instance, um, there's a, I, a, a friend of mine had a business on Victor Lewis Drive. Okay. Just over, just a little ways over. Not the Olympic swimmer, I'm assuming. Well, <laughs> I, I'm, I don't know. I mean, I've not been able to figure out why it's called that. Yeah. And, 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 and you go to the city and you say, okay, why did that street get that name? Well, we don't know. Yeah. It's like, what, you don't have a listing of this, a directory of this? No, we don't.
Yeah. Uh, and it's like, well, and a lot of times, of course, they let the developers pick names, which yeah. means you get these stupid names. Yeah. You know, developers pick the just the dumbest names for, for streets. You know, no. all the streets have the same letter beginning them. What a clever thing. Oh, that's just dumb. Yeah. It always occurred to me that, they, they, yeah. that the city should not relinquish the right to name streets. Yeah. They should retain that right, and they should have a committee that chooses street names. Yeah. I mean, there, there's people out there, people who are fussy about this, or like me, yeah. who will say, I, yeah, I'd love to sit on a committee that could pick street names. Yeah. Like some parts of the city, they do do that. I know in Charleswood, where I live, mm -hmm. um, the local historical society often gets involved in the names of streets. So yeah. you'll see them and go, oh, yeah, that's one of the families that used to live in, in Charleswood in the early days, you know, and they've named the street. That's nice that yeah. they would do that to recognize them. Um, but a lot of times in some of the newer parts of the city where they're putting in streets all over the place, it seems the city just yeah. says, ah, go ahead, put yeah. whatever you want. And yeah, it used to be charming. It used to be all the uh, prostitutes of the, <laughs> the mayor's favorite prostitutes, <laughs> yeah. you know, down in yeah. that area. Down in the Point Douglas area. Yeah, they get all those. And, uh, yeah. and uh, my favorite stumper is when I ask somebody, why... What is with Donald and Smith Street? What's yeah. up with that? Yeah, well. And they have no idea. Well, and, and then I get to tell them. Well, or even they don't even get it when you say, well, how about Fort and Gary? Yeah, yeah. It's yeah. like, think they, about it for a second. Yeah. Fort and Gary. Yeah. Fort Gary? Yeah. Uh, yeah. Donald Smith? Yeah. <laughs> yeah, it's fun. And then you give them a history lesson. Yeah. Then you, like for as much as I know. Yeah. And I, what I know came from, from books by uh, mm. uh, these guys writing books about Hudson Bay Company and yeah. different things. But. But it's fun because people's eyes open up and they For just sure. Go, oh. Well, and I think, you know, the best way to do it now, especially with the modern generation that is m very comfortable with technology, mm -hmm. is to make it accessible on your things like your devices, your, yep. you know, your smartphone, for and Like example. you say, hyperlinks. It's like going to oh, Wikipedia. Yeah. So when it says Donald Street, you can have a link. Absolutely. It actually well, says what that's I, all I, about. I did a project with the RM of McDonald a couple of years ago. Um, my family farmed in the RM of McDonald, and mm -hmm. uh, my dad went to a one-room schoolhouse there. Okay. The schoolhouse itself is gone, and the site of the schoolhouse is undeveloped it's still there and I know that it was a school but it won't be very much longer and all the people who know that might be gone I thought yeah. it'd be nice if there was some kind of marker you know and right now my dad before he passed away was going to put up a monument he ended up not being able to do it so that's one of the crosses I bear is mm -hmm. that I'm supposed to put up the monument on his behalf. But in the meantime, what I did to at least mark it temporarily, was we put up a little a sign, a metal sign. Yeah. But the sign didn't have a lot of space. And of course, with signs, the bigger the sign, the more costly it is yeah. to make. Yeah. So I thought, well, let's make a simple sign, just a small sign, put the name of the school on it, just say a little bit about it, and then put a QR code on it. You know, a yeah. QR code, you know, one yeah. of those, those grid patterns. Yeah. You hold your smartphone up, it scans it, and then it turns it into a, into a, web, a web link. Yep. And it goes to a web page on the MHS website that it yeah. has all the information. So, you know, rather than, for example, put all the names of the teachers who taught at that school, which yeah. is always fraught with difficulty because if, for example, you misspell a name, mm -hmm. well, mm -hmm. now you look like a doofus because the sign has the wrong name. Right. Uh, or if somebody forgot a name, oh, too bad. You can't really print the sign. Well, and history is always written by the victors or the people who didn't like certain people. And omissions can be happily made. Uh, information can be left out on purpose. Uh, or, you get all kinds or of Or even stuff. accidentally, you know, the yeah. records, for example, a lot of these schools are spotty yeah. at best. You know, the, the provincial archives has some of them, but a lot of them stayed in the hands of the last person to be, like the last person who is the secretary treasurer of the school district. They've got all the records. They yeah. may be sitting in a box moldering in somebody's basement, mm -hmm. but you'll never know because you, who, how do they know that you are interested in finding these things? Yeah. Well, anyway, so if you put it on a sign and then you find out a mother load of documents, suddenly you now have a much better list yeah. well you can't update it well yeah. you can update a website 
So then you, the advantage of then putting these links to a, these to the web pages, you don't have to have this huge sign, and you have a better experience because now you can have pictures of the school. Mm -hmm. So you go to the site of this one school my dad went to, and now you can actually see what the school looked like. Nice. It'll tell you what happened to the building afterwards. You know, because yeah. you might say, well, was it turned into somebody's house? Was it turned into a granary? Was it burned down? Yeah. You know, you'll now know a little more about it. You'll name the, the, the names of the, some of the students. Maybe if there was a prominent kid that went there and then went, went on to fame and fortune, yep. you know, you can say, hey, so-and-so is a student here. And then you, yeah. you know, this is all you know, information. It sounds like a great project for grade six kids across the province. Yeah. Because they're hyper-curious. Yeah. And they'll drag their parents into all kinds of places and situations where a grade six kid can go. Absolutely. Like, and they're just... It's just so perfect. And, and there's there's so many ways that you can exploit yeah. that that enthusiasm yeah. too. Yeah. Well, another well, one. Well, they'll go everywhere, like because they'll they'll grid pattern a whole area. Yeah. As far as you know, come on, mom, dad, let's go and look here, let's there, let's see what's here. Well, a friend and of if mine. If they do find something. A friend of mine is a is a high school teacher in Portage La Prairie, and mm. and he engaged his students to do just that, to write about one interesting historical place that they knew about by virtue of maybe talking to their parents, yep. talking to their grandparents. Yep. You know, yep. you go up to grandpa and say, Grandpa, do you know of any interesting historical places around here? So one of his grand one of the kids in his class said his grandparents said, Oh, they're the one of the only places in Canada where the CN and the CP cross, is on the west side of Portage La Prairie. Yep. And I go, oh, really? And so he went and researched it. He talked to his grandfather. He dug into some records. He got some pictures of it. You know, and the kid learned something in the process. Mm -hmm. He talked to his grandfather, and I'm sure the grandfather was tickled that the grandson wanted to talk to him, you know, because oftentimes yeah. intergenerational communication isn't what it should be. Yeah. yeah. Uh, so it was a great, a great sort of bonding experience from a family perspective. And this information is preserved because, of course, railways are being removed left and right. Yep. You know, and maybe, yes, it was a railway crossing at one time. Maybe in the near future it'll be gone, mm -hmm. and then nobody will remember that this was one of the few places that these railways crossed. Yeah. You know, and so there's all this information, and you're absolutely right. Mm -hmm. You know, engaging kids yeah. in this process is such a good way to do it because they have the natural curiosity. Mm -hmm. They have the resources. You know, more and more of this information is coming online. And I'll tell you, when I was in grade six, if you would have handed me a, a map of the area and said, go find out what's there. Yeah. Yeah, and, and you had that to work with. It was like, yeah. okay, and they want to know, I'll go. Well, or, 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 or on the war memorials around the yeah. province. You know, we're now just to coming up to the 100th anniversary of the end of the First World War. Yeah. Um, there's monuments all over the province that were put up after the war ended. You know, mm -hmm. grieving parents, you know, yep. uh, family members. Yeah wanted to remember their loved ones they yeah. lost. And so they put up these monuments, put their names on it. And today, most of us look at these signs and go, they're just names. I mean, they don't mean anything to us. Yeah. Particularly if you go to a small community where the community is now basically gone, mm -hmm. you know, the people who might have had a link to these names are correspondingly gone. Yeah. So what do you do? Well, you get kids working on this. You know, they'll, there's resources online. Yeah. You know, there's, there's Canada's virtual war memorial that lists people who were killed during the war. Yeah. You can search them so that well, the, the the Canada maps the the yeah the names the of map lakes resource. Um, you go into that building mm -hmm. and they have all this historical records. Yeah. Oh, yeah. And well, not only with land ownerships because all the land ownership maps and stuff, mm -hmm. but they have all kinds of. Then I didn't know. Mm -hmm. I was just talking to the person there once, the lady, and, yeah. and she says, "Oh no, people come here all the time." I asked her if it was boring because how often somebody <laughs> come in to buy a map, right? Yeah. And uh, and she said, "Oh, it's not at all. There's we do all this other stuff." Oh too. yeah. yeah. And I, was, I was like, 
okay, I didn't know. I got to go and talk to them. Yeah. Well, the one thing I wish they would do, though, at the maps branch, is start digitizing those maps. Yes. Because the reality is, like you said, I mean, who who uses maps? Well, yeah, there's yeah. there are some people still who are old school. I've gotten into it, and and the, uh, just to see who currently owns some land, if you want to. Oh yeah. Look into buying or whatever. Yeah. But also. Uh, just say for the the, the Beulah, because mm-hmm. I grew up in the Beulah oh, side really? of the line there. Yeah. So they did a, a book when I was a kid, the Centennial Books. Mm-hmm. But they'd also done one about in the 60s, I think, mm-hmm. Minnewash to Memories, yeah. which I finally got my hand on a copy of. And in the back of it, you don't you open this fold out map, and it, mm. that's where I learned about Dalloway and Champion, because oh, okay. it gave it said it gave the list of who originally mm-hmm. owned it, and then underneath so so it starts at the top name, yeah. that's who originally their homesteaded right. or purchased it, yep. and then underneath is who purchased it from them, mm. and if it's gone through hands, then it went up to yeah. at least up to that date, yeah. like who owned the land in that. Yeah. And so as a historical document, it's, oh, like, yeah. it's the, like, okay. Well, okay, so you, you mentioned how useful that local history book was to yeah, you. Yeah. You know, I, sh- I should then mention our, our, our Manitoba 2020 hindsight project. Okay. So uh, we're working in collaboration. When I say we, we're this Manitoba Historical Society. We're working in collaboration with the Legislative Library. Well, in fact, more generally with the Manitoba Libraries Consortium, which is an, or- an organization involving all the provincial libraries around the province. Okay. Um, as well as the University of Manitoba uh, Archives and Special Collections. We're digitizing the local history books. Um, in other mm-hmm. words, we're taking these paper books and turning yeah. them into digital books that are that are basically high fidelity to the original. The the text yeah. is readable, the pictures are viewable, but more importantly, the text is searchable. In other words, yes. that at a glance you can find a, yeah. a, a word in the book. So you know, if you found a, a one of these books that you know sometimes they're the thickness of a phone book. You yeah. know, they're like oh, they're, yeah. they're two inches thick. Yeah. Good luck trying to find a word. Well, now, of course, they're digital. You can find that word in a fraction of a second. It's mm-hmm. easy. So these books, therefore, become far more useful. Like now, like we've digitized over 450 of these books. The, the basic of the story, I should say, maybe the Manitoba 2020 Hindsight Project is called that because mm-hmm. we would like to complete the digitization of those books by the year 2020. Okay, okay. Because that's Manitoba's 150th birthday. See, the idea then is that for the year 2020, we want to give Manitobans the gift of 2020 <laughs> hindsight. Yeah as a birthday gift for their 150th birthday. so Which yeah. is great foresight. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> we want to do as many as possible. We know that we're not going to get them all done, mainly because we've estimated there are at least 1,200 of them in okay. existence. We have so far scanned 450. Wow. And you think, well, that means you've got a long ways to go. Well, the, re- the fact is we have scanned what you could call the low-hanging fruit. Yeah. You know, the easy ones to scan. Centennial for, probably, slides, centennial books. The, the ones that are big. You know, I yeah. mean, a lot of the thickest books were all done around the centennial of either Canada or Manitoba. Right. In other words, 67 or 70. Mm-hmm. Uh, and they were, they were they're readily uh, obtainable. Like, they, they made lots of copies so that we can, we can well, it pains me sometimes to say this, we can destroy the book. Mm. Because what we do to digitize them is we slice the spine off yeah. so that it basically turns the book into a stack of paper. Yes, and easier to take pictures of. Well, actually, the, in the initial days, we didn't, we didn't take photographs. We actually ran it through a photocopier. Right. Okay. Because modern photocopiers will create a PDF. Right, they'll scan uh, it at the same time. Yeah, you scan it and, then it and it runs it through optical character recognition software right. that basically makes it text searchable. And you just 
put the big stack of paper of the book into the document tray mm -hmm. and say, go, and it goes, you know, shoot, 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 and before long, boom, you got into PDF right. really fast. And, and the quality is pretty good. Um, the, mainly for the text. I mean, that was really the main objective was to preserve the text because mm -hmm. that makes it, of course, text searchable. Pictures, yeah. not as good because, of course, if you've ever photocopied a photo, a, a picture in a book, the quality isn't great. Yeah. But, you know, that's, that's not a big priority, it seems to me. Anyway, so we started doing that. We did the low-hanging fruit. We have started getting into the more difficult books to find. It's books that, for example, the mm -hmm. owners would be horrified if we chopped them apart. Yeah. So in that case, we do photograph them because then you just, well, it's, it's again, a laborious process. You get somebody to flip the page one at a time yeah. and then click, flip the page with a camera and yeah. photograph it. Well, say with the Google, they hire people. To, yeah. Yeah, and they use sticks or something to actually yeah. hold it it's, as flat as they can. manual process, but, yeah. it, but, it, but the quality is remarkable, really yeah. good. So we said we've done about 450. We still have a bunch of the smaller, the little pamphlets, the rarer things. Mm -hmm. um, there are occasionally books that we just couldn't digitize because the person whose book it was said, no, we don't want you to digitize it. Okay, right. fair ball, we won't digitize it. Yeah. Um, but we, we do as many as we possibly can. And the idea is to make them freely available. I mean, free, so that there's no cost, mm -hmm. uh, and they are therefore accessible to anyone. And they're wonderful. They're great sources of information. Mm -hmm. um, and and we, we we're hoping to get done by the year 2020 because say, that would be Manitoba's 150th birthday. But the bottom line is we're not in any particular urgency. I mean, as long as we can get the keep the the momentum going, um, the the problem right now is is getting them online because uh, the, the uh, website we had had originally the Manitoba website. Um, the server was getting elderly, the software was no longer supported, right. um, the people that maintained it were frustrated because they, you know, they didn't have the power that they wanted to be able to use. Of course, newer software does wonderful things the old software couldn't do. Yeah. So we've just, they've just recently mm. migrated everything over to the University of Manitoba. Okay. So if you type in manitobia.ca, you are redirected automatically. Um, to the University of Manitoba website. And Great. the interface, unfortunately, and I will say this with complete candor, is terrible. <laughs> um, mainly because I, I say that because I'm hoping that whoever hears this might be somebody of influence <laughs> and will go, oh, maybe we should fix it. Because, yeah. you know, it, it, it's designed the way a techie would design something. You yeah. know, it probably makes perfect sense to them. Yeah. But yeah. they don't design it from the standpoint of somebody who actually uses it. Yeah. You know, and, and so, for example, if you want to download that PDF, um, in the old system, you could download it, and the, the name that the file would get was the name that it had on the server, yeah. which is often the name of the book or some variation of the name of the book. Yeah. Now, it, every single book you download, it's called PDF Data Stream. Yeah. And, and, but it's not in there by itself. When you go to download it, you're given about six things, and it's all a bunch of techno babble. Yeah. And so most people will go, like, which one is the book? I, I'm not sure. And, of course, we're not dealing with people who are technologically no. savvy no. in some cases. So you can't expect them to automatically get it. You know? yeah. And I'm sure, again, the people who designed it thought this makes perfect sense mm -hmm. if you're a techie. Yeah. But if you're not, well, like... It's, it's the Steve Jobs versus Bill Gates world. Steve Jobs wants you to be able to pick it up and use it. Yeah. Bill Gates is like... You oh, should, from the inside out. You should learn it, and things. then you know it's yeah. your fault. You don't know how. Yeah, to use why it. don't you have a computer science PhD? Yeah. <laughs> so uh, anyway, so we yeah. still have to work out some kinks, but yeah. all the books are there, and okay, you good. can download them. 
Um, you can search, and they even have a nice little fancy interface that turns the pages one at right. a time, and blah blah blah. I don't want to do that. Sort of like archive.org. Or I, yeah, I, I want to. Like I want to download the whole thing. One. I, I, I yeah. want to have them on my laptop because yeah. I mean, yeah. I'm often in the middle of nowhere. Exactly. You know, I'm driving somewhere. Yeah, and they take a. They take. I have high speed, and it takes sometimes a long time. Oh yeah. For them to load. Well, that was so. the other challenge uh, we had with this project because uh, we had on the committee um, librarians whose mandate is to make the information available. Yeah. You know, and, and they want to make things available. And that's their primary reason for doing this project, is to make the information in these local history books available. Mm -hmm. We also have, have archivists on the committee. Their mandate is to preserve. Mm -hmm. and, and so the debate was, should we preserve these things at high resolution? And so the, 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 the digital copy then has high fidelity to the original but is therefore a big document. And so those of you who are out on dial-up modem connections, mm -hmm. if there's anybody out there still mm -hmm. using a dial-up modem, good luck, uh, because these things are going to take days. The size of these files, it, it yeah. just isn't going to be fast. Uh, as opposed to making it nice and small and streamlined, that is, uh, has all the information, the quality might not be the greatest. So that was the dilemma. Do you keep high fidelity, that is, makes big files that are hard to download, or do you have low quality that are searchable mm -hmm. that are nice and small that download fast? And or, do you, or do you do both? Well, see, that was my approach is that, okay, the U of M is going to have the high resolution copies. That's great. And for those who are on mm -hmm. high speed connections and can download those big files, great. Yeah. But for those who aren't on a high speed connection, uh, we should have an alternative that says, okay, if you really can't download a, a hundred megabyte file, go here and it's, it's five megabytes. Uh, and that that's something that I, I I've tried to insist on, and well, well, if it's text optimization too, when you do the the the, the high quality version, mm -hmm. couldn't you just save it all as text? Oh, you could. And then just make a text version. Yeah, unfortunately though, you want to keep the original image if you can, because oh, okay, then yeah. because if the if For the reference. optimal if the optimal character recognition isn't perfect, and it often yeah. isn't perfect, if the if the original is not terribly clear, yeah. it'll try the best it can, and it'll often give you gibberish. Right. Well, if you see the picture of the page, the human eye can say, well, that's obviously that yeah. word. Yeah. But if you just saw, if you didn't have the pa picture of the page, you just had the the, I, the. I think we had that with the newspaper archive. Yeah. That we found absolutely, and, and, and the the date and the text. Yeah. Because and then you go back and you look at the image, like you say, yeah, and oh. you realize it's a typo. Or, or, or you Not search a typo, for something. but it's a techo. You search for something in newspaper archive that you know is there. You yeah. know it's there, and you don't find it. And you think, yeah. well, how is that possible? I know it's there. It should have been recognized. Well, it turns out the optical character yeah. recognition wasn't perfect, and it's there, but it... You, you didn't spell it wrong in the you'd same have, way. You'd have, to, you'd have to search for Gleepzorp, yeah. because that's what it thought the yeah. word was. Now you magically have to know how they misspelled it. Yeah, so and of course that's impossible. Yeah. So yeah, so there's there's a dilemma there, and we still haven't ironed out all the details of it yet. Mm -hmm. um, I do have high resolution copies of everything, but I can also create low resolution copies. Right. And so my thinking was that eventually, when I got some spare time, mm -hmm. I would create those low resolution copies and then put them on the MHS website. You'd almost need a university helping you. Yeah, almost. <laughs> um, where would that university <laughs> yeah. be? Um, <laughs> right around me. Uh, <laughs>I've often said to people who often wonder, why is a scientist like me doing history? Mm -hmm. And I say to them, well, first of all, it's because I'm passionate about history. I love history, so that's why. But the, one of the advantages I think I bring to it is that I bring a different skill set than I think people who have traditionally followed 
the uh, sort of education that a historian gets. Mm -hmm. You know, because I find, for example, that a lot of people who I know who are formally trained historians are almost afraid of technology because it's something that they have not been trained to find, to be comfortable with. Right. You know, so for example, in the, the mapping project that I do, we use GPS all the time. And to my mind, that's the second nature, you know, yeah. using GPS, you know, measuring the, the precise latitude and longitude. And I've tried to show people how to use it. And a lot of times they say, oh, no, I can't do that. I'm stupid. I just don't know how to do that kind of stuff. And yeah. it's like, it's not complicated. You know, you could use it. Yeah. You know, but this is what I find a lot, you know, that people who come through a traditional historical background are not comfortable with the technology like I am. Yeah. And so I like to think that sometimes, you know, that some of the stuff that I've done that has involved technology is maybe I was uniquely qualified to do that kind of thing that other people might not have been. So yeah. who knows? Well, talk about your background in science. What, what, what's your training and background? Well, <laughs> I'm, I'm trained as a water scientist. Uh, you know, so for example, one of the things I w I'm interested in is algae growth in water and uh, the algae that causes water to turn green and become scummy and smell and, you know, sometimes become toxic. Right. Uh, that's the sort of thing I work on. And it's the effects of humans largely because mm -hmm. we have changed the conditions of water to make the conditions more favorable for algae to flourish. You know, we dump fertilizer in, for example, we dump manure in, we dump sewage in and all of that is food mm -hmm. for the algae and it yeah. makes it flourish. So that's where I started. And people often say, okay, but how do you get from there to history? And I said, well, it's partly because I just had a natural interest in history. I, I mean, as long as I can remember, I was interested in history. And I guess maybe I didn't go into history because I just thought, saw that the career prospects for me as a scientist were probably better than as a historian. Right. Yeah, I don't know. But, but anyway, the upshot was, as I went through my university training, I uh, had an opportunity to spend uh, three and a half years at the University of Alberta in Edmonton. And the guy that I ended up working with, who is my supervisor at the university, uh, did something called paleolimnology. Okay. Paleolimnology is the study of lakes and their history. Ah. You know, how do they evolve over time? And every lake changes. You know, if you wait long enough, and most of us aren't going to be here long enough to ever see the changes, because mm -hmm. it takes centuries. It sometimes takes, you know, thousands of years for these changes to play out. Right. But every lake will eventually become green and scummy with algae if you wait long enough. Mm -hmm. um, it, the process is called eutrophication. And see, every lake goes through it, but some of them go through it a lot faster. So lakes that we dump fertilizer in, for example, they go through that process way faster. And that's why we're seeing lakes that used to be clear and clean when we were children yeah. now becoming scummy. Okay. is because we've dumped in all these chemicals that have made them that way. So this guy that I worked with in Alberta did sort of a reconstruction of the history of a lake by going in and you, you, you basically collect a sediment core from the bottom of the lake. Um, and the, you think of the sediment on the bottom as kind of like a timeline mm -hmm. because all the living things in the lake, the plants, the animals, they die, they sink to the bottom. Mm -hmm. They lay the, the, their bodies their, or the remains of their bodies become part of the mud on the bottom right. and gradually piles up over time. And so if you could get a, an intact column of sediment off the bottom, and there's various devices that will do that. Mm -hmm. I've got several of them. You can bring up an intact column of mud from the bottom, a vertical column. It's a timeline. Right. The top of it is today, and the further down into that column you go, the further back in the past you go. Right. And you can then take samples of the material at different layers. Mm -hmm. um, you can do things like radiocarbon dating. 
So you can say, okay, the layer at the top is today. The layer down here is 2,000 years ago. So this layer of sediment then represents a timeline of 2,000 years in duration. Right. In between, you can take samples out. You can do all kinds of things. I'm a biologist, so I would do things like uh, looking some of the little fossils that are in the mud. Mm -hmm. Okay. Not necessarily fossils of big organisms. Uh, in my yeah. particular case, I look for fossils of things called uh, diatoms, which are a single-celled plant. Okay. Um, but they're very specific. They're found in particular conditions. So if you show me a diatom, for example, and I'll say, oh, that's a diatom from a lake that is fresh, that the water is nice and, and fresh. Or this other diatom, no, no, that one's one from a saltwater lake. Or this is one from a lake that is full of, of nutrients from, from fertilizer, whereas this one is found in a pristine lake. I, so mm -hmm. from based on the fossils that you find, and these, these fossils can remain there for centuries, for thousands of years. They don't decompose. So you can take samples all down this timeline. You can look at what diatoms are in the different layers and say, okay, at the near the top, they're all diatoms that are indicators of, of polluted conditions, whereas down here, they're all indicators of very fresh conditions. Mm -hmm. So you can reconstruct the sort of the history. So basically, it's history meets science. I was going to say. So, yeah. you know, so therefore, you know, I, although I have this long-standing history in history, yeah. it was a natural connection. Plus, on the way to the lake, you're looking over there and saying, yeah, I wonder what that old building was. It's a natural <laughs> thing everybody thinks. Absolutely. Well, I do anyway. Yeah. Not everybody does, well, but I certainly do. Because I'll, 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 I'll say, what is that? And a lot of people say, I don't know. I've seen them there all the time, too. Yeah. And then somebody will go and find out somehow. Somebody, really, well, you know. somebody who's patient enough sometimes yeah. or, yeah. Or, or, you know. Or, or, or you hear some, that's again, the detective stuff where you, it's in your head. Yeah. And then you'll hear something somewhere and then you'll, well, you'll mention it to the person you're talking to and then they'll go and. Precisely. Well, yeah, like that, that, that building I mentioned that had the big punch in the side of it. Yeah. Um, I was giving a presentation about water management uh, because that's another one of the things I'm interested in is not right. just research on water, but also how we manage water in yeah. Manitoba. So I was the chair of something called the Manitoba Water Council. Mm -hmm. And the idea was that it was an advisory body to the provincial government that would advise the government on water management issues. Mm -hmm. So I was giving a presentation at a conference one time talking about water management. And then this guy comes up to me afterwards and he says, oh, I'm the reeve of the municipality of whatever. And I said, oh, the municipality of something. That's when I asked him, do you know anything about that little building? And he was yeah. kind of taken aback. It's like, why is this scientist, <laughs> this guy involved in water, asking me about an old schoolhouse with a hole in the side of it? Is he a narc? <laughs> <laughs> Did he hear about the booze up? <laughs> well, he may have been thinking that the guy is, you know, maybe has yeah. heard from somebody else. But I went, no, yeah. I actually saw it. I was there and I was wondering what it was. Yeah. And uh, because the people say they don't often find people that have this joint interest in history and science. Yeah. Anyway, but it was that, that it was a chance meeting. It was just complete fluke. And as a result of that, I found out the story. So it's wild. Yeah. <laughs> well, so also, uh, there's that six degrees of separation thing everybody yeah. talks about. Oh, yeah. <laughs> and my friend always says, Manitoba is 0.5. Oh, if that even. Yeah. I mean, I'm continually amazed at the connections that I make between people. Yeah. You know, so, you know, you're from the Bertle area. Um, yeah. You know, we could start throwing out names. Uh, yeah. Bernice Still. Yeah. Grew up, yeah. Uh, down the road, yeah, two three miles away. See, the, the, there's a woman who I think is a treasure. And you know, she's running Isabella. Yeah, that, yeah. the museum. And, and basically, I meant to the, go last summer. I didn't get in there. Basically, but. the town of Isabella is yeah. the museum. And I was so happy because uh, in the Bertle School we had a printing press. Yeah, the old we spin it. And oh yeah, make sure you yeah. don't get your hands caught in it yeah. or you look. I didn't know where, if it was still in the school or not. And uh, the teacher, mm -hmm. uh, Ron Samchuk, 
uh, oh, retired. Oh, Ron was your teacher. Yeah. I know Ron. The graphic arts, yeah. Yeah. And uh, we got, I got in the media because of him. Yeah. Uh, well, and of course, and he makes videos. Yeah. Right? Well, he got in when the cable came in. Yeah. And they had to give everybody a community channel. Oh, okay. He was one of the first ones to pick up on and, and let's get involved. Yeah. And then we were students coming up through the way. So we got involved in that through school. And, and, and he and Brenda, his wife, are yep. both involved with the museum in Bertle. Yep. Yep. And I know I contacted them when I was doing my book about the residential school because I was yep. looking for some great photos. Mm -hmm. And Nathan uh, Hasselstrom, who was the, little, the young curator of the museum there, yep. he had told me about these wonderful photos. And I got a hold of Brenda, and she yep. put me in touch. She showed me the pictures. And yep. I tell you, small world. Yep. Oh. Yep. And, uh, and the printing press, so I asked him, I said, is it still there or has it been yeah. moved? Because, you know, school divisions are like, oh, throw it. Oh, of course. Yeah, yeah. Throw it and melt it. Anyway, he said, no, it's in the Isabella Museum. Is and it? I was, my, my heart just went, oh, great. That's Because yeah. if it wasn't, I'd have to raise money and save it somehow. Yeah. <laughs> but it's there. Yeah. Good. Well, and I wanted to go visit it, so we'll probably uh, head up there sometime. Another connection is that uh, uh, Ron and, and Brenda do uh, these videos, yep. and they make them for the Manitoba Agricultural Museum. Yep. And I'm now on the board of the Manitoba Agricultural Museum. Excellent. So, yeah. I, and I was hearing about these people at Bertle. They said, "Oh yeah, these people at Bertle make these yeah. videos." And I didn't realize it was the same, the Sam Jackson. When, when he started out, because it was the half-inch videotape, mm -hmm. like just the old, and it was a recorder and then the camera. Okay. He would use that all the time uh. to, to to get practiced at it. To, and he was a photographer from before too. Oh, okay. High-end photographer. Yeah. He would do people's weddings. Like, yeah. So then he got into making videos for weddings huh. at that time. And all and in school, he would take pictures all the time of all this classes okay to to contribute to the yearbook so when you graduated uh, there'd be picture random pictures of you and your little <laughs> crowd all the way through the high school years because uh, he would he would just pop in if there yeah. was a club doing something he yeah. would just pop in take some take pictures, pictures and huh. move on and can't school rooms you just walk in take pictures yeah you know in his spare time yeah. it was just you know he just ongoing huh. but when the video came along he started getting into better cameras and, yeah. and upgrading but he would go out and videotape a combine in a field or yeah. seeding yeah. and he was selling stock footage to people all around the world like yeah. australia they'd call up and say oh we hear you have agricultural footage of yeah. uh, combining on the prairies uh -huh. they go yes i do and they say oh can you send us some and he said well first of all wait what time of day do you want it at <laughs> and they'd say oh uh well i don't uh, daytime like middle of the day okay <laughs> Uh, what kind? What kind of combine do you want? What kind of? What color do you want? Do you want it to be green, <laughs> yeah, orange, yeah. yellow, whatever? And they'd, they'd be, be like, they'd be blown away. Yeah, they'd be just like, oh my god! It's just like, <laughs> have we got the right guy? <laughs> yeah, and they're like uh, a green one at sunset, heading you know uh, away from the like left to right. Yeah, and he'd be like, yep, I can do that. And then he'd just go and get it, cut it out. Boom. Yeah, and it was just. And Incredible. then he would do real estate stuff for people overseas. Yeah. Like if some Germans were wanted to see the uh, properties, yeah. the agent will have me go and do some videotape, make a tape, they'd send it over. Yeah. All, you know, he just found all these uses for video, wow. which is brilliant. Yeah. And uh, it's just amazing. But, yeah, absolutely. But that printing yeah. press is one of those things where... I, just like, I, I haven't been able to see, tour the Isabella Museum either. I, I knew, I knew, I, well, I met Bernice as a result of a program I'm involved with, with the uh, Lieutenant Governor's Office. Okay. Um, you know, because in my travels around the province, inevitably I, ru I run into people like Bernice. And, you know, they do this wonderful work. Like Bernice has done so much to mm -hmm. catalog the history of the Isabella yeah, area. Six, she has six buildings there yeah. that, that hold... Yeah. She went around to all the farmsteads in the yeah. surrounding area and inventoried a lot of these buildings because, of course, a lot of them were being torn down yeah, and yeah. she wanted to at least get a documented record of them all. Yeah. So, so 
I've encountered all these people, you know, and they've been doing all this wonderful work. I thought, you know, they don't do it because they want thanks. Most of them just do it because they think it's important. Mm -hmm. But I thought, you know, they, it, we should acknowledge these people. So yeah. I went, we, we, a few years ago, we went to the lieutenant governor. Uh, at the time, it was um, Philip Lee. And uh, we said, you know, would you be interested in starting a new award program? Of course, the lieutenant governor has mm -hmm. quite a number of award programs yeah. for various things. Would you be interested in doing a, a, an award program to recognize people who had done wonderful work preserving provincial history? Mm -hmm. And he said, oh, that's a good idea. Yes, let's do that. So we started it in 2011, and we've, we've been doing it now for, well, this is again the seventh year. And each year we call for nominations. And, you know, people from around the province are encouraged to nominate somebody from their community who they think deserve this award. And I get, and it's not monetary. They, they, get, a, uh, they get a certificate. Um, under the present lieutenant governor, Mrs. Philman gives them a tree, okay. uh, a, a special maple tree, and they plant it in their community. So it means that the tree will hopefully yeah. outlive them. Yeah. Um, and it's more just sort of, you know, acknowledgement that they've done wonderful things. And so Bernice was one of the people who got one of the awards early on. Yeah. And I, I didn't know her before that. And it, it's it's actually a little self-serving for me because then when I'm trying to find something about a particular, so if I want something about Beulah or Isabella or or even further afield, I'll, mm -hmm. I'll phone up Bernice and say, uh, Bernice, do you know who I could talk talk to? And of course, often it is Bernice herself I can yeah. talk to. Yeah. Or she'll say, well, I don't know about that, but here, uh, let me talk about, uh, I'll f make some inquiries and I'll get back to you. Or you should talk to so-and-so because they'll know. You know, mm -hmm. these connections around the province are in valuable yeah you know i mean routinely i'll get people contacting me by email and say uh, uh my, my grandparents were farming in the gilbert plains area and i, I want to know about uh if there's still anything at the farmstead that they used to have mm -hmm. and i go well i don't know i mean i'm sitting like five hours away from gilbert plains i can't look out and find it yeah. but here phone this person or email yeah. this person yeah. And they can help you. Well, how did I know that person? Well, it's because of these various contacts that I made yeah. through traveling around the province. And I, you know, I have a large contact list, and I, I treasure that list because it is so, mm -hmm. so helpful, you know, to find people. If I, there's an obscure question, or if I want to, like, say, in finding research, you asked before about yeah. where do we get the information? Well, sometimes it's putting up a, an inquiry on social media, mm -hmm. but sometimes it's just, say, phoning up Bernice Steele and saying, Bernice, what can you tell me about the elevator at Beulah? Yeah, and, which uh, is still there, one of the few remaining in private hands. Yes. Uh, needs in, a paint job. Oh, it needs a lot more than that. <laughs> um, I yeah. actually was there, was it this summer? I was there for last summer for sure. I think I was even there again this summer. I flew my drone at it this summer. That's right. I was okay. there because I wanted to get some aerials because somebody put a fire on it uh, oh, yeah. sometime within the last couple of years. Oh. One side has got all scorched. Yeah. They obviously put the fire out before it got too far. Yeah. But it's going to happen one of these days. Well, the elevators are coming down left and right. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, in fact, one came down two weeks ago in Justice, just northwest or northeast of Brandon. Yeah. Uh, so somebody, somebody's going to come along and torch that at one at Beulah. They say there's no justice in the world. <laughs> no, there is. Soon there won't be. There won't be. There yeah. won't be any Beulahs in this world either. <laughs> yeah, it's too bad. And oh, the book I have, um, I know the Manitobia. The, the, you guys didn't have it. Mm -hmm. uh, you had the later one, I think. Mm -hmm. um, so you have another one that we yeah. don't have in Manitoba? I think it's the earlier one, yeah. Because I, I had to go and find a physical copy of it oh. because I couldn't find If you had it on your website, I yeah. would never have gone to look. But it's coil bound. Oh, see, if it's coil bound, it's a dead easy thing to digitize. Yeah. So you can actually give the book Absolutely. back. Absolutely. <laughs> well, see, that's the thing. So if yeah. there are other books that people have that they're willing to either yeah. A, donate and then have yeah. sliced, or B, loan, 
-hmm. so that we can digitize it photographically, we can add them to this collection. And we're routinely saying to people, yep. you know, if you've got these books, by all means, contact us because that's how these books get into this collection. We don't have the means to find out about every book that exists. No, exactly, yeah. You know, and so if people say, well, occasionally somebody will contact me and say, uh, how come you don't have the, the book for Darlingford? And, and I say, well, yeah. because we don't have a copy of it. Well, would you like one? Mm -hmm. um, yes. <laughs> yeah, and usually they're asking because they're holding one and saying, well, why don't you have this? Uh, yeah, and and it's, I, it's beautiful because then it's like, well. But you do have to be careful because yeah. uh, sometimes you'll, uh, you'll, assume that they have the right to give the permission to you to digitize it when you find out no no they have a copy of it but right. they weren't the one that actually created it and you feel you really have to deal with the people that yeah created the book in the first place yeah. so we got in big trouble one time we did a book called the Iceland Icelandic River Saga and it's the history of the Riverton area okay uh, it's a wonderful book it's rare as hen's teeth I mean you can't find a book for love or money mm -hmm. and it's it, if you do it's hundreds of dollars that they sell for yeah. well we were going to digitize it and the uh, the owner of the book, or the author of the book, caught wind of it, and caught and got in touch with it, and he was just mad that we were that we digitized this book that okay. that we were and and and, and well we said so it's well, like rights issues. His feelings. His rights were being impinged. Yeah. Well, but more specifically, what I think he said was that he was worried that he was being deprived of income. Uh, we yeah. thought, well, that would only hold true if the book was still in print. Right. If there were copies that I could purchase from you. Yeah, because he's not making money off used copies changing hands. That's right. They're going through used bookstores. Yeah. You know, he should get mad at the used bookstores then because they're yeah. making money instead yeah. of him. But why should he get mad at us? Because all we're doing is making the book available to yeah. people who want to access the information. And it might push it back into print because people say, we're going to get a copy. Well, put it back in print, make yep. more copies. So I, I, I never understood yeah. his logic. Yeah. But nevertheless, he was upset. And, you know, it's mm -hmm. his right. It's his book. So we, we backed off. Yeah. Same with in McGregor. McGregor had a two-volume set of books that uh, okay. was a wonderful, is a wonderful source of information. Um, the this is one of those dilemmas between archivists and librarians. We went into the library. I went into the library, and uh, I was going to go to the archives, and they, they were closed that day. But the librarian said, oh, and I told them what I was there for about this book. And she mm -hmm. said, oh, they will be sure, I'm sure they'll be happy to have the book digitized. So here, take, take a copy of each two-volume. Yeah. Oh, I bet you it was like a week later, I got this very angry email, bring those books back. <laughs> and I'm like, wow. oh my, like, what yeah. did I do? Like, what's wrong? And they said, that librarian had no right to give those to you. They were not supposed to be given away. We are selling those books. And if you digitize them and put them online, we are never going to be able to sell a book because nobody's going to want to buy a book that they can get for free. Right. Well, we said, you know, but there's a lot of people that still want a physical copy. You know, they, mm -hmm. people who just don't feel comfortable looking at a computer screen, older folks who aren't comfortable with the technology, right. or even just, you know, I like physical books. I, I mean, I'm technologically mm -hmm. sophisticated, but I still like physical books. Yeah. But, you know, again, I'm not going to get in the middle of a local spat. So I, you know, I said, okay, um, fine, I'll, I'll bring the, I brought the, brought the books back. Oh, no, pardon me. I, I bought the books. I, yeah. I said, I sell me the books because I, I want a copy for my own personal library. Mm -hmm. So I bought the books. And then, uh, oh, I don't know, sometime later they contact me again. So, okay, now you can, you can digitize it because we've sold them all. Yeah. And uh, so now we don't care. Is, is it possible for you guys then to sell digital copies? We is could, that, is but, it but that's not a business model we're interested in, you know. Because it would help, like, for example, the Riverton Fellow. 
if if you said yes. well we do sell these on if like if somebody downloads it and yeah wants to pay for it but my worry then was we might be perceived rightly or wrongly that we would be benefiting financially okay you know that hey you're making a buck out of this oh and, and the, socialists aren't supposed to only capitalists well, are supposed to then but, but the reality <laughs> is the people who did these books did not do it to make money yeah so they would be upset that we would be making money when they didn't and oh no i don't mean for the the public ones or no. for the, uh, the the ones but for people who have issues oh yeah who are well, saying well it's a current book and we're selling and the reality is you know yeah. we, we 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 actually made an effort this last couple of years to try to track down the copyright holders on a lot of these books yeah. And of course, the copyright holders are probably, in a lot of cases, no longer on the planet. They're, yeah. you know, they're deceased. But the, the fact of the matter is, we still wanted to make the effort. We wanted to have seen to have been made the effort. Yeah. And a lot of times, we would contact the municipality, and they'd say, "Good luck," yeah. because everybody associated with that project is gone. We'd and say, a lot well, of those were, like you say, were done with uh, centennial projects anyway. So it's government rent. money meant to be a public project. Anybody who took part in it. Was volunteering their time. Yeah. So yeah. and and that's it. So we see it as a, a community service to make these yeah. books available. Yeah. But so that but I would still be hesitant. So if we sold a digital copy to someone, like a, mm -hmm. a, a printed copy of a digital book, uh, and if we just sold it for the price of making the copy and mm -hmm. maybe the postage, there would nevertheless still be people saying. Yeah. You're making a profit. We don't believe that the post. Oh, postage! If you've ever mailed a book, you know. What about downloads? Like digital downloads? Well, they can do that now. I mean, yeah. you can go to the Manitoba site and you can download every PDF there yeah. you want. No, go but ahead. I mean, if you had one for sale, I don't know. Well, but, I mean, you, you could you could digitally download the PDF and then yeah. take it to McNally Robinson. They've got one of those book yeah. print printers that will print you a nice copy of a book. So if if you want to do that, you're welcome to do yeah. it. Yeah. And that's my that's my preferred way to do yeah, it. Yeah, and they, they have a notice there saying make sure you have the rights to yeah. do this, and it's all fair. And bottom line is yeah. most people aren't doing it to make a buck. They're no. just doing it because they want a copy. Yeah. Or, or, or we've occasionally get cop, uh, emails from people saying, I'm trying to find a book for my grandmother. You know, she desperately, you know, she's on her deathbed. Mm -hmm. She wants to see this book. Yeah. Uh, could I, could you tell me where I can find a copy? And more often than not, it's a, it's a book that I've never heard of. Yeah. Or the other day I got an inquiry from somebody from I think Thunder Bay. They wanted to get a DVD that had been made at a school reunion <laughs> back in the 90s. And they said, yeah. where can I get the copy of this DVD? And I go, I yeah. have no idea. A DVD. Yeah. You know, there, aren't, there, aren't, there isn't a big source of DVDs. You know, no, so good no. luck finding that. Yeah. I mean, but I don't know. I'm, I'm sorry, I can't help you. You'd have to find the defunct company that made it, probably. Or you might the even, person, it, you know, if it was somebody the like the Samchucks, you know, yeah. if they at least are still in business, yeah. but there might have been other these small, small companies. And it might have been gone. just somebody, some kid who knew how to do it. Precisely. And so it wasn't made for money. It was but, just, but there's people out yeah. there who think that the, everything is now online. Yeah. Everything. Yeah. So, you know, just tell me, where is the book online? <laughs> That's Where's the biggest the disappointment on? with the internet is you assume what you yeah. need is online. Yep. And typically everything but what you need is there. Yeah, like well, a, a, and it's improving. I mean, there yeah. is a lot more online now than there was even five years ago. Yeah, but the yeah. reality is that it takes time and it takes oh, effort and it takes. And there's going to be lots of things that yeah. will never be online. Yeah. I mean, they never will be because there's not enough demand to warrant the cost of digitizing yeah. them. So you see the stuff that's online. It's all be done because it's stuff that is of high volume. Yeah, lots of people. Or of a specific interest. Yeah, like a certain VHS copy of something that that's has right. a, that's a, right. a, a specific interest value to lots of people. That's right. Right. Will yeah. be somebody will put the time into that. That's right. But yeah. like you say, the reunion DVD, probably nobody's going to go and make a copy of that and put no. it up. So uh, one of the chapters in my next book is about uh, flax processing in Manitoba. Okay. And uh, I, uh, this is something I had a personal connection to because as a as a university student, I put myself through university working for a company that processed flax. 
So I contacted, the company's still in the business today, so I contacted them and they said, oh yeah, we had this old promotional video way, from way back in the 80s or 90s. Yeah. And, uh, but they said, oh, we've digitized it. And so I got yeah. an MP3 of it. Oh, great. And oh, I mean, it's low value, uh, like yeah. production values were pretty low back yeah. then. But it's the, the quality. I mean, it's as good as the as the tape copy, at least. Yeah. Actually, I've got. In fact, that just reminds me. There's a guy here in Winnipeg, who uh, is now deceased. He's been gone for a few years, in fact. Who um, used to make nature documentaries, and he made a number of them over the years. And so I would love to find out where, if the family, because he's been gone for a few years, but his family may have some of the master tapes or something yeah. to digitize them because there's one in particular. Uh, it was called, this is coming back with my, ha my science hat on now, was called Cattail Bounty. Okay. And uh, it's wonderful. It's, it's kitschy, but it's informative. And I have a really low res copy that was made from a terrible... Uh, VHS tape, one that the, the tape had stretched in a bunch of places. Okay. So you're listening, and suddenly you go, <laughs> and it's like, oh, the sound is terrible, and it cuts out at one yeah. point. It's like, oh, I wish I could get a nice, high quality digital copy. Well, they might have the film, the original film. Well, and, and they do, may do. Which I, you can transfer then. I, I'd love to get a hold of the family and find yeah. out if they have all these tapes because I think they should be digitized. Yeah. You know, it, it's a slice of life that is disappearing fast. Yeah. George Cotter was the guy's name. Okay, I recognize the name. You because yeah. uh, I mean, it's, it seems to me that he should. Uh, uh, well, we have a little biography of him on yeah. our website, um, but he should be better known. Yeah, because he did some pretty important work, I think, in doing in preserving a lot of this, you know, this nature history. I guess you could call it yeah. uh, of Manitoba well, landscapes. Is just being able to see because yeah. people don't realize that a lot of different people would use that footage mm -hmm. for a lot of different reasons yeah. because you're going to look for different things in it. Yeah. And, uh, well, near the end of this cattail bounty, he has, he's, a, he's in a classroom with a bunch of school students, and they're weaving the, the cattail leaves into baskets. And uh, they pan mm -hmm. around the classroom, and I bet you there's some students who are now getting on in years and looking to go, that's me! Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> or you're looking at the wall behind going, that's what the inside of that school looked like. Yeah, that's right. You know, there was people years ago who would buy up collections of people's family photographs. Yeah. And because what they wanted to do was look at either the clothing yep. or the uh, the hairstyles or the what kind of glasses, but they were looking for yeah. clues to what oh, everyday yeah. life was. That's that's one of the things I yeah. do. Yeah, I I, I so, collect old photos. So you can like, see inside houses and yeah, buildings and all kinds of absolutely. stuff. Absolutely, yeah. you get clothing styles, for example. Yeah. One of the things I'm really interested in, for example, is uh, uh, dating old photos based on the names of the photographers that took them, because a lot of right. times in those old days, when mm -hmm. you would get a print from a photographer, they would stamp somewhere on the on this cardstock yeah. that, the print, that the print was glued to the name of the photographer. Sometimes yeah. they'd have the address of the photographer. And I had my bright, bright idea was if you could have a database of all the names of the photographers along with the years that they operate at these different addresses, mm -hmm. then if you came to me and said, I've got this picture from my family album, it was taken by photographer X and the address was at address Y, mm -hmm. I could cross-reference it in my database and say, okay, that picture was taken sometime between 1897 and 1899 because yeah. that's when that photographer was at that address. That was my idea. It, mm. it hasn't quite panned out, mainly because it's a it's still a work in progress. Yeah. But that's you you require a lot of pictures to do that. You need to have evidence mm -hmm. of dated pictures that you know were taken in this particular year, and say, okay, yeah. this shows the particular dress, and it was taken this year, so therefore we know that this photographer was there at that time. So. Yeah, it's wild. Yeah. 
Oh, you know, you you just it's unfortunately endless, eh? you just yeah, absolutely endless. There's so many things you could do. This is why I'm I'm actually I sent an email this morning to try to find out about my uh, in my retirement benefits, because uh, I'm looking to retire probably within six years. Okay. Um, not because I want to slow down, mm -hmm. but in some ways because I want to speed up. Yeah. Well, retired uh, people never have. They, they wonder how they had time to work. Well, yeah, because <laughs> I, like these interests that I have for history, I all have to be indulged in my spare time. Yeah. Uh, I do have a little flexibility, you know, during the daytime when I don't have a class, I don't have to necessarily do everything I need to do in the daytime. Right. I can do it in the evening. I can talk to you now, mm -hmm. for example. But um, Which I appreciate. Oh, and I, and I enjoy this. Mm -hmm. um, but I would like to have more time to be able to devote to this. Like my wife already calls herself a history widow. Yeah. <laughs> uh, and, and so I anticipate that when I do retire and I can commit basically full time to this, I'm hoping to take her on the road with me because otherwise mm -hmm. we may not see each other <laughs> for long stretches <laughs> of time. A nice little caravan. Uh, yeah. Well, and yeah. you need that some places too because a lot of the communities are s shrunk. Mm -hmm. There's not hotels everywhere. I find that all the time traveling around and you just think, I just need a, a van or a yep. small motor home because, yep. you know, just to get by. Well, yeah, because in some communities you, there's nowhere to stay. You'd have to put up a tent along the road or something because yeah. there's just nowhere. And that, that's the thing. A lot of these little towns were once thriving. They often had one or two or three hotels. Yeah. And now they don't even have one. Yeah, and campgrounds and yeah. different things that were taken yeah. care of. And, and other amenities. You know, yeah. gas gas stations are disappearing. Now uh, you pull over to and you think it's a nice spot, and it turns out it's some, uh, you know, industrial farmers kind of. Yeah thing and they're yeah. looking at you like what are you doing there yeah and it becomes sort of like it becomes a yeah. it, it gets weird it's, yeah. it's like it's like we're being shut out of the countryside yeah. in ways too yeah i sure. mean and they might be fine with you staying there but it the feeling isn't the same you oh. know the feeling back in the day would have been you know you get somebody say oh well, who are you what are you here yeah and you start talking to them you make yeah. friends nowadays it's, it's an employee somebody yeah. who's Oh yeah, they well, don't care for insurance purposes. You can't be on this side of this line. Or well, then, and there's many fewer people, of course, in rural Manitoba because of the population and the ones mm -hmm. who are still there. I I have bad luck. I, you know, I'll, I'll ask somebody for directions or I'll ask them for information about a particular place, and they'll say, "Oh no, I I only work here. I don't live yeah. here, and I don't. I've only been here a couple of years. Yeah. I don't know anything." Yeah. And it's like, well, who would I talk to? Well, Mrs. So and So maybe, but uh, yeah. she's not here right now. And it's like, yeah, yeah, it's it's really and all it does just because. Uh, the machinery it's so much yeah. bigger and more efficient yeah that you don't need as many oh, people now absolutely you and know uh, as opposed to a, like a threshing gang you had to have like a dozen guys and now yeah. one person oh and they'd all be small landholders maybe 80 yeah. acres or something oh, and yeah. they'd all do each, each other's and oh the, the notion you know, of a big farm you know not that long ago yeah. was like a, i have a whole section yep. 640 acres yep. of land and now it's like now they got 12 only of them. 640 i have 12,000 yeah know? Yeah, you know, and, that, and that's the nature of it. It's it. Well, yeah. my family, for instance, farmed up until well, five years ago. Yeah. Um, my my brother, who was the last one to farm the land, has basically got out of it because he realized that unless he was prepared to go big, he basically couldn't compete. Yeah. And uh, you know, it's costly. You know, you have to buy all this equipment, and you know, and and, and you therefore are you're you stuck. You have to basically commit all these resources, and if mm -hmm. you have a bad crop year one year, mm -hmm. you. You're financially and under the... Well, and the bigger you are, the, the less... You, know, you do make more money, but that's on a slimmer profit margin, too. Well, and, and like you say, if something goes sideways, that's a big operation going sideways. Anything that's dependent on the weather is, yeah. is I think, just so risky. I mean, I like the regularity of a nice paycheck coming in every couple of weeks. Yeah. yeah. The notion of never knowing from year to year if you are going to live or die because of what your crop might be. Yeah. I couldn't be a farmer. I, I have so much respect for people who are farmers because they can tolerate that, but I sure, heck, sure as heck could not.
Okay, thank you, Dr. Gordon Goldsboro. That was a great discussion I had with uh, the the good doctor, the good doctor, and um, yeah, it's such an interesting subject to uh, get involved in history and whatnot. So yeah, you know those abandoned places were have stories. They do have stories. They were places that people lived, people grew up, people, you know, made a living and enjoyed their daily activities, their uh, monthly activities, their rituals, their yearly holidays, their gatherings, their visiting, and, uh, you know, good times, sad times, bad times, all kinds of stuff. So um, there you go. Okay, we got some more great episodes coming up. Remember to search Manitobaville. Tell your friends about Manitobaville. And visit manitobaville.ca. And you can contact us if you like. You can make donations. You can do all kinds of fun stuff to interact with the Manitobaville podcast. All right, this is Mahangel. This is uh, the Manitobaville podcast, as you know. And just a reminder that we are copyright 2022 Rodeo Road Studios. (laughs) 